power. Power. Power is part of the cultural waters we swim in. Power. Power is like water because it's all around us. And if we're not paying attention to it, it's invisible. Power is like water because it presses in on us and we have to learn how to navigate it. Power is like water because, like a fish, sometimes we don't even question it. We don't even see it. It's just the way things are. Power. You ever ask this question? I ask this question a lot. Who gets to decide what and for whom and when and where and why? Who draws the lines on the map? Who decides who gets to live where? Who decides who gets to make the decisions? (laughs) That's a funny one. Who decides who gets what funding and who doesn't? Who decides whose lives matter and whose lives don't? Power is one of those things that if you have it, it's easy to grow so accustomed to it that you don't even notice that you got it. Power's like water. We swim in it every day. If you don't have the power, you know you don't have the power. You feel it. It's like a fish out of water. You're gasping for breath. It encumbers your life if you don't have power. It can hurt you. It can even kill you. So what's the solution? Is the solution to grab more power? If you don't have power, you got to get power, right? That's what we think. We think you got to grab some power. Turn the tables. Become the one who calls the shots. Then it's your turn to turn the screws and cause the pain. Does that solve the problem, really? Or is it still a problem with power? Power matters. It does. Power matters to God. God empowers the powerless. But the power that God empowers the powerless with with is an altogether different kind of power than the power that we're used to. It's a subversive kind of power. It's an unexpected kind of power. It could even be a scandalous and foolish-looking power. But it's a power that actually transforms people and transforms communities and eventually is going to transform the whole world. That's the kind of power we're going to talk about today because today is Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday, in which we, just Jesus' disciples uh, and Jesus' disciples around the world, Remember that God has empowered us by pouring out God's Spirit upon us and in us. So today we're going to talk about power. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about culture, cultures, and the ways in which that intersects with us, Roots Covenant Church. So we're going to look at two passages, one from uh, Acts chapter 1 and one from Acts chapter 2. Bet you didn't see that coming. <laughs> Juice did. All right. Before we do that, though, before we dive in, let's pray. God, we're going 
open the scriptures once again, and we ask that your spirit would illuminate and enlighten our hearts and minds to the truth that you want us to hear today and see today with our hearts and minds. Lord, we pray that um, as we come to the scriptures, uh, that your spirit would accompany us there, that your spirit would be uh, giving us wisdom, giving us insight, giving us uh, guidance. We don't just come to the scriptures to learn information. We come to the scriptures to be formed. We come for formation. So we pray this morning that your spirit would be forming us, sending us, and that in the process we would learn how to obey your spirit. Help us not just to hear, but to be doers of the word. In Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Okay, so let me, paint the, let, me, um, let me paint some contextual background, okay? For the last several weeks, we've been in this series uh, called Swimming Lessons, and I've been leading us through this trajectory, starting in the very beginning, with the first 11 chapters of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the world, and God created humanity, and it was very good. Remember that? Very good. And there was shalom in the garden. There was right relatedness between humanity and God, between humanity, among humanity, between humanity and the creation. And God blessed humanity with this cultural mandate, this calling to be stewards of the earth, to be vice regents. I like that term, vice regents. Rulers on God's behalf. Stewards of the earth. And to go and what? Fill the earth, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, that whole thing. But then what happened? Sin entered in. So we have uh, Genesis chapter 3. An enemy deceives humanity. Humanity eats of the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a.k.a. judgment. This led to shame. Shame leads to hiding. Shame turned outward is blame. Blame turns to violence and death in the story of Cain and Abel. Then we saw how this judgment that we latched onto as humans can become culture, judgment culture, when it gets externalized into social systems. And then those social systems take on a life of their own. And then the social system then internalizes that judgment and shame and hiding and blame and violence and death back into us. We become participants in that system. That's the city of Cain. And then we saw how Lamech, this character of Lamech, multiplies judgment culture into polygamy and violence and, and escalation of retribution and all the way up to Nimrod. And Nimrod is the greatest warrior in the world who becomes synonymous with empire. He builds an empire called Babylon. And then we got all the way up to Genesis chapter 10, where Genesis chapter 10 is called the Table of Nations. That's what some, some people call it. And all these tribes begin to fill the earth, and they begin to create culture the way God intended. There's artisans, and there's musicians, and there's craftsmen. And they all spoke different languages. And then abruptly, in Genesis chapter 11, it says they were all in one place, and they all spoke one language. 
Now, some scholars say, oh, well, these, these two chapters are out of order. Really, the, the Tower of Babylon comes before the Table of Nations. Because we all know at the end of the Tower of Babylon, people are scattered, right? And they speak different languages. I don't buy that interpretation. And I told y'all that. I don't buy it. I think what happened is Babylon conquered all these different clans and enforced one language on them. Stripped them of their languages and enforced one language on it. How do I know this? That's what Babylon does throughout the Bible. Genesis to Revelation, check it out. Daniel chapter 1, that's what Babylon does. So, what that means is this. That the diversity of tongues, of languages, in the Tower of Babylon story, is not a curse. It's not a curse. The way I learned it was, God cursed the people of Babylon because they were working together and cooperating. Remember we talked about that? In the ancient Near East, did people build tall buildings out of cooperation and teamwork? Is that how brick buildings got built in Egypt? No. Slavery. Enslaved people built these huge buildings. So this intervention of God was a liberation. It was a restoration of the diverse languages. So, then we made the turn. Do you remember the turn? The turn was in chapter 12. In chapter 12, the narrative of the Bible takes a turn into the rescue mission of God in Abraham's family. Abraham's family gets called and and God cuts covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing to all the families of of the world. And I'm going to give you a seed. And the seed is going to be a blessing to all the families of the world through you and through the seed. So then we turned, remember we turned to Galatians chapter 2. And we saw in Galatians chapter 2 how Paul had to confront Peter. Why did Paul have to confront Peter? Because Peter withdrew from the Gentiles. We withdrew, withdrew from table fellowship with the Gentiles. And Paul says he was not acting in accordance with the truth of the gospel. Because the gospel is that in the Messiah, in Christ, God is making one new humanity, bringing Jew and Gentile together in one multi-ethnic family covenanted with God and with one another. That should get an amen. That's us. Amen? That's, that's, that's good news. The world is divided, but Christ's body is united. And so, today, we're going we're gonna to reach the end of that trajectory. The very, the very climax of this tra- trajectory is when God's Spirit is going to fully complete this trajectory into the mission. And that's what's going to happen in Acts So let's turn our focus to Acts chapter 1 to set the context, and then we'll talk about Acts chapter 2, because this is Pentecost after all. So you can read along in your translation of the Bible if you've got one, or you can read along on the screen behind me. I'm going to do a lot of reading, so follow along. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he suffered, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. What did Jesus teach them about for 40 days? The kingdom of God. Good job. You're listening. Okay. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with what? The Holy Spirit. Okay, good. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates which the Father has set up by his own authority, but you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, let's talk about this. First of all, Luke is the author of both the gospel that we call Luke and this book we call Acts. Now, it's traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles. You're going to see why. Uh, if you read the book of Acts, it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Am I right? It's really not the apostles doing a whole lot. It's a, the Holy Spirit at work through the apostles. But Acts is the, uh, uh, Luke is the author of Acts, and Luke was a companion with Paul on many of his missionary journeys, which are recorded in the book of Acts. Now, uh, this is in the context of after the resurrection. Jesus has been crucified. He has been risen from the grave, and he spent 40 days doing Bible study with the disciples, and the Bible study topic was the kingdom of God. So that's the context. Then they ask him this question. Is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I'll be honest with you, for a long time I thought, that's a dumb question. But we're going to see how maybe that's not so dumb after all. We might see, we might see a, different, a different lens on this passage uh, uh, chapter 2, in a moment. But here's the critical part. The critical part is this. Jesus commands them to stay in Jerusalem and says these words. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Four things. Receive, power, Holy Spirit, witnesses. Those are four things I want you to pay attention to. All right? Let's go to chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Verse 9. Where were these people from? Parthians, Medes. Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. 
We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. That's a fun thing, Sunday school. (laughs) All right, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. I love Luke. (laughs) Now, this is what has been spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your, old, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which he did among you, do among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing, that, seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you, see and what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Here's what the people said in in response. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many words he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, 
and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's a powerful story. This is the birth of the church. This is the, this is the birth of the movement of Jesus in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I said earlier about how I don't think that question was actually so dumb is you can see how God did restore the kingdom to Israel. It just wasn't what they were looking for. It wasn't the kind of kingdom that they had in mind. It wasn't a pure ethnic state. The kingdom is bigger than any national border, bigger than our ethnic boundaries, bigger than our cultural uh, distinctives, because Christ is not the king of just Israel, but the king of the whole world. And so in these people from all over the Roman world, from Parthians to Medes to Elamites, Mesopotamians, uh, Judeans, Cappadocians, all these different people groups, there were Jewish people and Jewish converts who were culturally distinct. They had been generations and generations as a part of the diaspora, the dispersed people of God in all of these nations. And they had been acculturated into these different cultures, but they were Jewish. They were part of Israel, and God was starting with Israel and sending them out into the rest of the world. So, here's my conclusion about this. The Spirit created a multicultural community of misfits finding their identity in Jesus, and that's good news for us. That's who we are. We are part of this Jesus movement, God's Spirit bringing people together, uniting us in Christ from different cultural expressions, different walks of life, but united in Christ. In order to gift, get the gift of the Holy Spirit, the next thing I want you to see is that they had to have a receptive posture. Jesus said that it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's true. When you give, you get a blessing. But I would argue that sometimes, oftentimes maybe, it's more difficult for us to receive than to give. Isn't that true? When you give, you're sort of in the driver's seat. When you, when you give, you're, you're the agent in control. Remember Peter, when, when Jesus wanted to wash Peter's feet? Could Peter receive that gift from Jesus? No. And I've been in, I've been in Peter's shoes. Uh, in two weeks, Pastor Terry... Austria is going to come and, and speak. When I was 17, uh, Terry Austria washed my feet, and I felt like Peter. I was so, you know, nervous and, and, and ashamed. You can't wash my feet. You're my pastor. It's difficult for us sometimes to receive, but in order for these disciples to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, they had to have an open posture to God. This poses a question for you and me. This challenges you and me. Are we open to the Holy Spirit? Do we have that open posture? Are we willing to receive what God is giving us? That's an important question I think we should keep asking ourselves regularly. Or are we like Peter saying, no, Lord, you can't do that. You can't give me that gift. The next thing I want you to see is that the disciples that were gathered in the upper room that day, they became caught up in the Holy Spirit. 
caught up so much so that, they, that Peter went from the timid, cowardly disciple who denied Jesus a few weeks before this, right, to suddenly the bold preacher. He was caught up in the Holy Spirit. Do you remember a few weeks ago when I talked about there was a man who was uh, at a political rally a few years ago, maybe a year and a half to two years ago, and a protester was being led out of the stadium where there was this rally, right? And uh, this man began to berate this protester with curses and obscenities. And it was, it was video recorded by somebody and it was posted everywhere. And when this man was interviewed afterwards, he said, he said, I can't believe that was me. He said, I'm not a hateful man. He said, I was caught up. He said, I just got caught up. Do you know that we can get caught up in spirits? Did you know that? A spirit is something that moves us, that energizes us. And I have been in rooms, not unlike this room, where you could get caught up in a spirit of accusation. Have you ever been in rooms like that? I've been in rooms where, I'll give you an example. I was in a room not so, not so different from this one at a church, and the church had offered membership to a man coming out of prison. And I was in a room not so dissimilar to this room, and people stood up and said, if that man is allowed to be a member of this church, I'm leaving. I'll never be in a church with that man. There was a spirit in that room. It was very accusatory. And I did not feel comfortable with that spirit. I stood up in that room and I said, some of you don't know my background. You don't know what God has delivered me from. And maybe if you knew what I had done before I came to Christ, you wouldn't want to be a church member with me either. And I said, I don't know this man, but I believe in the grace of God. And but for the grace of God, there go I. So if he can't be a member of this church, I don't want to be a member of this church. There's a spirit that we can get caught up in. And the question that this text poses to us is, what spirit are you being caught up in? Is it a spirit of accusation? Do you remember what Hasatan means? Hasatan is less of a a proper name and more of a title. It means the accuser. Are you being caught up in a spirit of accusation or are you being caught up in a spirit of advocacy? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. Are you caught up in the spirit of truth, of liberation, a spirit of prophetic speech? That's the spirit that the disciples were caught up in. The, spirit, the, the Holy Spirit is the, is the antithesis of the unholy spirit. You and I can get easily caught up in an unholy spirit. You want to know how you test the spirits? Paul gives us a test. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience. I have to look down and and read them. (laughs) Faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Is that the Spirit you're being caught up in? In other words, is that what that Spirit is producing? Or is the Spirit you're being caught up in producing the works of the flesh? which Paul says are very obvious. 
They're destructive. They're damaging. They're harmful. There's a test. You can, you can see what kind of fruit the spirit you're being caught up in is bearing in your life. Last thing I want you to see is when did they get the power? When did the disciples get the power that Jesus promised them? And did the power that Jesus promised them, did it put them in charge? Did they get to draw the lines on the map? Did they get to allocate the resources? Did they, did they become the rulers and the principalities and the powers of that, of that region? No. That's not the kind of power Jesus gave them, is it? Jesus gave them an altogether different kind of power, a subversive power, a surprising power, a power that didn't look like the power that they were accustomed to. They were accustomed to the kind of power that I was talking about before. Who gets to decide what, for whom, and where, and when, and why, right? But Jesus gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit, a a, a completely different kind of power. And here's what it reminds me of. This is what it reminds me of. In the book of Revelation, there's this theme that gets repeated over and over again in the book of Revelation. First, you hear something, or actually not you, but the John of Patmos, who's the main character in this story, right? He hears something, but then when he turns to look, he sees something completely different. What he sees is surprising, unexpected, even subversive. So here's an example. In the book of Revelation, John hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And he gets excited. He's an Israelite. He's like, the lion of my tribe has conquered. I'm excited. So he turns to look. I want to see the lion. Whoop! He turns to look. And what does he see? Do you remember what he sees? He sees a little lamb. The word there is like a little lamb. Not even a full-grown lamb. Like a 30-year-old lamb. <laughs> 30, just 30. And it one like that had been slaughtered but was alive. Imagine how that would throw you for a loop, right? You're an Israelite. You hear your tribe has conquered. How many of you still root for your college, uh, your college team, right? <laughs> you know, like in, in, uh, in Illinois, it's part of the Big Ten. You know, the Big Ten has some real strong rivalries, right? You got Wisconsin, you got Michigan, you got Ohio, boo, right? I didn't even go to the U of I, but I grew up in Urbana, so I root for the Illini, If I heard the Illini won the final four, I'd be hyped. They're terrible, really bad. I'd be really hyped if I heard that, right? I'd be like, Illini won? That's what he feels like. John of Patmos goes, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered? And then he turns to look and he sees a little lamb that looks like it's been slaughtered? That's That's a total reframe. That's a totally different view of power. It's not who gets to draw the lines on the map. It's a power that comes from God. A subversive power. 
Lamb power is more powerful than lion power. That's what, that's what John teaches us in Revelation. And in the same way that lamb power is more powerful than lion power, Pentecost power is more powerful than Babylon power. Babylon power is the power to gather up all the clans that were in Genesis chapter 10 in the Table of Nations and strip them of their languages and give them one language of Babylon. That's Babylon power. But Pentecost power is the power to enable all the different cultural groups in Acts chapter 2 to hear and to understand one another. That's Pentecost power. Do you see that? Any dummy can gather people in one place and take their language from them and force them to speak another language. But you know what only God can do? Gather people from all over the Roman Empire and empower them to hear and understand one another in their own languages. Only God can do that. Nimrod couldn't do that. Babylon power is the power to gather up all the people from those clans in chapter 10 of Genesis and force them to live in one place. But Pentecost power is the power to send people from every tribe and nation and fill the earth and to spread the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's Pentecost power. Babylon power is an attempt to ascend to heaven to be like God. That's Babylon power. Pentecost power is receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. God comes to dwell with us. And not just with us, but in us. That's Pentecost power. Babylon power is the power to turn people into brick makers and, ton- and tower builders. That's Babylon power. But Pentecost power, check, watch this. Pentecost power is the power to turn people into living stones to build a spiritual house that God dwells in. That's a metaphor that the, the apostles in the New Testament use over and over and over, that God is building his house, and we are the living stones. We are those who make it up. Babylon power dehumanizes people. Pentecost power rehumanizes people. It makes us fully alive, fully who God meant us to be. Babylon power captivates and Pentecost power liberates. I want you to hear this quote. This is one of my favorite quotes about power. It's by an uh, author and theologian who's gone to be with the Lord. His name is Clark Pennock. Can you put it up on the screen? It's the next slide. There you go. Listen to this. God's true power is revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about how weird that is. The cross is where criminals were executed to show everyone that Rome was in charge. Don't mess with us, you'll end up on the cross. Clark Pennock starts with, God's true power is revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. In this act of self-sacrificing, God deploys power in the mode of servanthood. 
overcoming enemies, not by annihilating them, but by loving them. What an unexpected form of power. Is it not a subtler and higher form of power than coercion? It is a power that respects the mutuality and reciprocity of love. I love that quote. That's one of my favorite quotes. You want to know what true power is? Look at Jesus. Jesus shows us what true power looks like. Here's another one of my favorite quotes about power. Dr. King said, There was a time when the church was very powerful. In that time, the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. This was written in the 60s. He said, things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is the arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and even often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, the spirit that we're talking about on Pentecost, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I would go, I would go so far as to say few words are, are, are so prophetic for the American church than those words. Do you know what we're seeing today? This, exactly. We're seeing millions of people forfeiting their loyalty to Christ and viewing the church as an irrelevant social club because there's no authentic ring to our voice. There's no sacrificial spirit. There's no true power from God. Instead, we're caught up in a different spirit. Now, let me say something about Pentecostalism. I can critique Pentecostalism because I am from Pentecostalism. You know how, like, when somebody from outside your tribe critiques your tribe, it feels like a threat. But within your tribe, it's important for you to critique your tribe. I think that's a, that's a good practice. It's a healthy practice for some self-critique. 
I love Pentecostalism. I learned a lot from it. My, my pastor who's coming in two weeks is Pentecostal. He, he discipled me. But in Pentecostalism, we had a temptation to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and, and that's it, and then enjoy it. Yay, we got the Holy Spirit. Let's celebrate as if the gift of the Holy Spirit was an end in and of itself. But do you see in this passage the purpose of the gift of the Holy Spirit? What was the purpose of the gift of the Holy Spirit? To be witnesses. The Spirit empowers us for witness, to be light and salt. The power of the Holy Spirit is to flow through us, not to remain in us. We are not containers for the Holy Spirit. We are conduits for the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? That's some homiletical uh, alliteration going on right there. (laughs) We are called to be witnesses, not to wallow in God's blessings. All right. One more point, and then I'm going to wrap it up, okay? This past week, uh, a phenomenon happened on the Internet. This, this happens occasionally from time to time where something, some little meme pops up, and then that's, that's all everybody talks about for, like, days. And uh, this, this time around, it was an it was a, a audio clip. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And if you played it, you could hear it two different ways, Right? How many of you in the room, I just want to take an informal poll, how many of you in the room heard Laurel? Team Laurel, okay. How many of you in the room heard a form of Yanni? Oh, you Yanni people. Oh, man. (laughs) Get out. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) For the life of me, I could not hear Yanni. I tried. I was like... Yeah, yeah, there was the, the slider thing. New York Times did a, like, like a slider that you could change the, uh, the audio and you could hear both. That was, that was nice of them. Here's my point. This couldn't have happened on a better week, right? Here we are, Pentecost Sunday, talking about the, the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And what, and what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon the, the disciples in the upper room? It, do, it, it says twice, more than it says they spoke in different language, it says they heard them in different languages. I think this also raises another question for you and me. I think the question that this text raises for you is, are we hearing one another? I think that when we receive the Holy Spirit and we are caught up in that Holy Spirit, the one that I've been talking about, I think the the Spirit empowers us to hear and to understand one another. And I'm not just talking about languages. I'm talking about heart languages. I'm talking about we are a community of misfits finding our identity in Jesus, right? And if we're going to be on a mission together, we're going to have to depend on consciously the Holy Spirit to empower us to hear and to understand one another. That is not e- that's not an easy task. It requires maintenance. It requires uh, a, a, a continual submission to the Holy Spirit. We have to continue to come back to the Holy Spirit and say, 
Tell me again. Empower me again. Show me again how I can hear and understand my sister or brother. Because it's hard. Sometimes we're going to mishear one another. Sometimes we're going to misunderstand one another. But this text promises us, it demonstrates for us that if we are in a posture of receptivity to God, if we receive the Holy Spirit and we are caught up in the Holy Spirit, he will empower us to hear and to understand one another. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time shot. You've got to keep coming back. Here's how I want to close us. I want to close us. Um, this, this week I was, uh, I was in Prairie, what is it called? Eden Prairie? That's, that's a suburb, right? I was in Eden Prairie at a church planting conference, and um, a church planting leader uh, was talking to me, and he asked me a question. The question was something like, what needs to happen at Roots Covenant Church? And he, 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 he continued talking, but as he was talking, it was, like, it was like I began to see something as he was talking. Like he was painting a picture, right? And the picture became so clear that he was painting. And the picture was this. Roots Covenant Church, we, we use this metaphor, but we have to ask ourselves, what are roots for? Roots by themselves are just dead. Did you know that? Look, if you have roots in your, in your garden, I just planted a garden. If you have roots in your garden and there's nothing popping up over the soil, you got nothing. It's dead. I mean, it's literally buried in the ground. Roots without a stalk and without leaves is dead. Suddenly, as he's talking and I'm seeing this picture, it's like, it, like, it like hit me like a ton of bricks. Roots are for fruit, Right? Roots are for fruit. Can we say that together? Roots are for fruit. Fruits Covenant Church. The power of the Holy Spirit nurtures and cultivates and energizes our roots. Just like the disciples in the upper room that day. The Spirit came and energized and and stirred them up. For what? To be witnesses. To go and to proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Messiah of all nations. And that God is gathering together a people, a new people rooted in Christ, who passionately love God and purposely seek the renewal of their cities. The purpose was to bear fruit. The purpose is not just to get a gift and speak in tongues a whole lot. That's great. I speak in tongues. That's fun. That's fun. That's great. That's not the purpose, though. The purpose is to bear fruit. Roots is for fruit. So that's why I said earlier that we, we are going to, this summer, we're going to, as a leadership team and as, and as, a, and as a congregation, we're going to we're gonna have to discern what God is calling us to do. You know, we, we've got some decisions to make. And as we go forward, I want us to be in a posture of receptivity to the Holy Spirit. We've got to be like, we, we can't be like Peter and say, no, Lord, don't wash my feet. We've got to be open like the disciples in the upper room, open to what the Spirit might bring, open to the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can be empowered to be witnesses, so that we can bear fruit. 
All right, here's how, here's how we're going to close for real. I'm going to ask you to stand up, and uh, we have a, I have a liturgy, a, a litany, that I want us to, to say together. I'll read the parts marked, marked one, and together we'll read the parts marked many. And let this be our declaration. Let this be our corporate uh, commissioning. This is what we want to say together as a church. God's spirit joins with our spirit to declare that we are the children of God. Come, spirit of wisdom, and teach us to value the greatest gift, which is love. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, spirit of understanding, and reveal all things to us in the light of God's inbreaking kingdom. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, spirit of counsel, and guide us in the way of Jesus into the new creation. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, spirit of might, and strengthen us against all the snares and schemes of the evil one and all idolatrous desires that tempt us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, spirit of knowledge, and teach us how to see Jesus clearly and rightly. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, spirit of prophecy, and give us the words to speak truth to power and to proclaim liberty to those in bondage. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, spirit of power, and embolden us to spread the good news of Jesus to all peoples. Come, Holy Spirit. Now let's pray these these words together. Almighty God, you poured out your Spirit on all the gathered disciples, creating bold tongues, open ears, and a new community. We confess that at times we hold back the move of your Spirit among us out of fear and disobedience. We do not hear one another nor speak with grace. Have mercy on us, O God. Transform our timid lives by the power of your Holy Spirit and fill us with the flaming desire to be your faithful people through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, both now and forever. Amen.